Hey, this is Keith Price, and I am so glad that you have become a part of the Keith Price's Curtain Call family. It is really great that you guys are enjoying it, and I really, really feel like I want to give you guys more and do more for you. And the only way that I can do more is if I can get a little bit of help from you. So what I would like to ask of you is that you check out, if you're listening to the podcast, to the Patreon page that I have started in which I'm asking that if you have an extra buck or two that you could throw over to the side once a month, I would be very appreciative. As time goes on and the more support that I can get and the more energy that I can create, behind this, it will give me the opportunity to reach more people. And the more people that love theater in the world makes the world a better place. So www.patreon.com slash Keith Price Curtain Call. Help a brother out. Come on now. Help a brother out. Thanks a lot. Ooh, you are listening to Keith Price's Curtain Call. This is Keith Price, and welcome back to Keith Price's Curtain Call and the special feature. Now, you may have heard my last interview that I did with fellow comedian Allison Castillo, and now I am now having a conversation with in the Lavender Laugh Lounge, because this is where you are. Oh, yeah. You're in the Lavender Laugh Lounge, where we... The Spend luscious time. Lavender Laugh Lounge. Yeah, well, we sit and I, and I get to bring you guys something a little bit different from the mix. However, as I've tried to point out before, that I am a comedian, first and foremost, who also loves the theater, who also happens to be a big queen. Hi, pride. Um, and at the same time, you know, I have to remind myself a lot of times that as comedians, we don't think of ourselves sometimes as actors because... What we do, people think we're just telling jokes and telling stories. And what you, I've realized now over the years is that doing comedy is like doing a monologue every night. Sometimes twice a night. Sometimes right. three times a night. And if you're having a really good hustle day, there's a four-set night for you someplace in the city. And so as far as bridging the gap between the Keith Price Curtain Call people who love theater and now hopefully the Keith Price Curtain Call people who will also love some comedy and all of the folks that my next guest who, if you have been clicking around on my site, you know that I was a guest on my next guest's, I have to make sure to get the right S, <laughs> um, podcast, Where's the Grief, in which we talked about some sad stuff, but we talked about finding the humor in places while we're in the middle of all of that sadness. And I said to him then when I brought him on, or when he brought me on his show, that I wanted to make sure to return the favor and at the same time talk to you about comedy just as comedians yeah. doing stuff out in the clubs and stuff. And also, too, to give you guys who are listening the opportunity to find another, as another um, aspect of performance that you might not have thought about. That's one of the other good things about this. So cool. my guest who's here today for episode number two of the Keith Price Curtain Calls Lavender Laugh Lounge. I'm going to have to come up with something flashy for that. <laughs> um, my new friend, Mr. Jordan Ferber. Hello. Hi, you, baby. I am excited to be here. I'm so glad you're here, and we're going to get to talk about other stuff now besides death. Isn't that great? I'm just happy that we're here to uh, drop episode number two. <laughs> We're dropping the deuce today, people. The deuce, baby. Because <laughs> if this series doesn't work, it's going to go right to shit. But that's right. the other story. The, here it's so fun because Jordan Ferber is a fellow comedian who I met a couple of months ago. We were doing open mic, 
And it was fun for me because I don't get to perform as much as I'd like to, although I should be performing a lot more. And so getting to do an open mic is always a joy, especially because we did it at a place that we love in the du- the duplex down in um, yeah. West Village. Where you used to get some highbrow jokes and some high kicks. And high kicks, that's right. And not to mention, you know, a couple of show tunes if you stick around after. Right, right. You know, but the good thing is, is that it was fun for me because I get to discover and meet new comedians, especially when I do things like that. And so for you, I mean, for me with you, you were a complete and total discovery. I mean, I've been doing comedy off and on now for over 20, 25 years. And, you know, here in in New York, a little bit over 20, maybe 15, 20. And we've never run paths and we have a lot of mutual friends, but we never came across each other. And it's like, how weird that that's the way we found each other. Yeah. I'm just happy that I've been discovered you know, <laughs> at all. <It's>, uh... <laughs> oh, come on. Come on. Of course, <laughs> I don't want to necessarily repeat the conversation that or the joke that made me sit up and pay attention to right. the <laughs> But um, it was a very, very big joke. Hey, <laughs> how you doing? And, um, but at the same time, it was really great because it was fun to have conversation with comedians about you know, an aspect of our lives that we don't necessarily get the opportunity to bring to the stage and be able to find humor in right. it. And so Jordan is really fabulous because, um, you know, he his organization that he is, his foundation, I should say, um, named after your brother. Yep, the Russell Ferber Foundation. The Russell Ferber Foundation. Um, and it was out of the loss that you found this opportunity to... Um, the loss of your brother brought you this 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 way of dealing with your grief mm-hmm. and at the same time helping other people, especially in the name of your brother, who was kind of like moving the same path. Yeah, we, um, try, we try to find ways to sort of carry his spirit forward uh, and, and, and help people that are trying to follow the same kind of path that don't have the financial resources to do it as quickly as my brother did. So, so what well, okay, so now tell me the so, uh, the So my brother was a pastry chef. He was just about to graduate with a degree in the pastry and baking arts from the Culinary Institute of America upstate. So we have a full two year scholarship in that program. Uh in his and, name. In his name. And so far we've put six kids through the program. Wow. And um it's pretty exciting to know that he's still making a difference in people's lives and we, we still get to talk about him all the time which is great, and we get to continue our relationship with him in ways that we hadn't planned on. Wow. Now, when is this benefit? So the, it's our yearly benefit. It's always the end of June. This year it's Wednesday the 28th of June. Wow. Uh, we hold it at the Village Community School, which is the uh, elementary school my brother and I both went to as well. So it's we also give some money to them. There's a fund there in his name. And uh, it feels good to go back into that space every year, and, and it really feels like... He's there when we do it, and it's uh, it's it's a beautiful new auditorium that they built about uh, 15 years ago. Wow! And it's 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 a lot of fun. We get about 300 350 people that show up to support our our, our yearly event, and it's a comedy show that I host. I got a killer lineup this year, mm-hmm. and we do a raffle and a silent auction and a 50 50 raffle, and we have all sorts of. Food and nibbles and cookies and brownies and lots of desserts. It's a wonderful event. It's yeah. just a wonderful, um, wonderful event helping you memorialize your brother. So tell me about your brother. What was your brother like? Well, <laughs> I always think it's so funny when you talk about people who have passed. A lot of people try to uh, 
angelized, angelicized people, yeah. you know, or, or you know, put them on a pedestal. They never did anything wrong. Mm-hmm. I think some of the best stories <laughs> about my brother are the ones that you can't believe the balls on this kid. <laughs> my brother was a, a, a ball buster right out of the gate. I mean, mm-hmm. he was always a, a, a talker, uh, very charming. He had a, 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 um, a growth hormone deficiency, so he didn't. His body didn't produce enough growth hormone, so he had to take shots mm-hmm. to, to grow. He'd take a shot every day of growth hormone. And when he was about 13, 14 years old, he still looked like he was about 10 or 11. He was really small for mm-hmm. his age. and he, he, But he was really smart, very smart, knew how to read people, knew how to really just charm people. And because he was so small, he looked like he was this little kid that was way smarter than he would, you know, the, the things that came out of his mouth. Mm-hmm. And uh, so he was... He worked it. He worked it. <laughs> I always say that he lived more in 21 years than most people do in a lifetime. He really, wow. he did it all. Wow. He uh, wanted to be a basketball player until it yeah. turned out that there aren't any five foot Jews in the NBA. <laughs> uh, there aren't. I don't think any Jews in the NBA actually. I'm sure they are. Well, I mean, there are agents. We have to, let me ask Chad. Chad, if Chad's <laughs> around, Chad would know. Well, that was the thing. So when he was, when my brother was 13, he had a business card that said, the little man with the big mouth. And he decided, he realized that Wait, he, the fact that he had a business card at 13. Yeah. Wow. Hi. Yeah. Bam. <laughs> and, and, a, and a, you know, a beeper. Mm-hmm. And uh, he was he was rolling with uh, uh, he was rolling deep with some with 80, his peeps. 80s realness. That's what oh, he yeah. was giving you. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> He, was, he, had, he had a fake ID at 16 and was running, uh, promoting for nightclubs in the city. Wow. At 17, hanging out. His best friend was dating Paris Hilton. He was he was living that life. Wow. Partying in the Hamptons, you know, going to Bungalow 8 and wow. Eugene's and all those He was living the life spots. that none of us are. Right. <laughs> and I didn't care. He would bring me to the thing and introduce me to somebody hey did you I'm like okay what, what, but what do we have to talk about yeah. <laughs> how much a, older are you I'm three years older yeah, okay and it was weird kind of being in his shadow in a sense uh, even though he was younger mm-hmm. because he had access to all these you know he went after these things and I was squirreling away and you know writing dick jokes in the, in the corner <laughs> But the the good thing is, is that when he brought you around, then you could be entertaining. Yes. If you needed to. Right. See, that's how it works. He became, when he was 13, my brother became friends with, with the Knicks. He he knew, he, he became friends. The team? With a bunch of people on the team. He invited the entire Knicks organization to his bar mitzvah. Uh, Mike Saunders, the head trainer at the time, he actually came to the event. <laughs> Jeff Van Gundy, who was an assistant coach, uh, sent a check. And uh, Derek Harper, the point guard at the time, he was supposed to be, he was supposed to be in attendance, but did mm-hmm. not did not show up. Oh, uh, so he RSVP'd and then ghosted you. Yeah, pretty much. That's not good. Yeah, yeah. celebrities. But, you know, yeah, <laughs> he but probably was, was doing something indecent with some poor cheerleader. Anyway, but so beyond the matter. players, Ru- Russell became, he was friends with everybody in the garden. He knew the guys that t- took your tickets. So wow. we, we, we would get to the garden before they started letting people in. They would still let him in. So he would get in, and then he would call to a friend of his and say, hey, I have an extra ticket. And he would leave that ticket for him at will call. Wow. So he would sneak people in. He would he would sit. He would not sit in our seats. He would sit much closer. Someone People would come and say, hey, I think you're sitting in my seat. He would say, okay, let me see your ticket. And he would look, oh, oh, it seems like you're right. And he would go closer. <laughs> he became friends with the people that brought food to the seats. So he didn't even look. He didn't even look out of place wow. when he would sit in the seats that weren't his because he knew the guys that that brought the food around. He knew half of the security guards anyway. They never bothered him. Mm-hmm. 
he would get he 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 became friends with a woman that was uh, George Kalinsky, the official photographer for MSG. Uh, she was his assistant. She became friends with with us with our family mm-hmm. and. We would go to games and be able to hang out on the court before the game because we could hang out with her. He became friends with the ball boys. If they didn't take the court apart after games, he would play a pickup game of three-on-three with the ball boys on the floor of Madison Square Garden. Wow. And I would stand at the other end and like, um, and take three-pointers. My, my, my brother's really cool, y'all. <laughs> how cool is... How weird is that, but then how cool is that at the same time? Because yeah. clearly, when you think of it now, it's like, I guess... Where your brother could have ended up with his energy like that. And that's how he was rolling it, you know, yeah. 17, 18, 35. He fucking would have been running Hollywood. And right we now. still have a lot of those connections. My dad still has season tickets to the Knicks. And whenever we go to the game, the guy that works the, the front desk at the uh, VIP uh, entrance is still the same guy wow. that we've known for, for 20 some odd years. And uh, we talk to him at the beginning of every game. Uh, we still know a couple of the ball boys. Uh, there's a woman that works uh, PR for the Knicks that uh, gives us uh, some uh, memorabilia for the for the uh, silent auction every year. Uh, although Knicks memorabilia ha- hasn't really garnered much attention <laughs> in, in the last decade or so. Okay, I think I think last year she gave us a hockey stick. <laughs> okay, so here here's what's <laughs> so hilarious is that even someone like me, the big show tune. Still, like in a Tony Afterglow queen that I am, know enough to know that the Knicks have not been producing hardcore. That's you, how bad it is. It's, it's it's truly one of the silver linings. It's one of like the the jokes I make as a silver lining as to you know uh, the fact that my brother's not around to see this, to see how far they've fallen. <laughs> oh, Jordan, you know. So this is really cool because I mean, you know, at some point you have to get all of that stuff out, and it's nice to know that your your memories are of that. But now we can take a separate turn now because yes. you know Act two. Act two. We're gonna go on. It's like this is this is how and why we met. Now I feel a little bit better about knowing a little more of the story. But now let's talk to you about your world of comedy. How yes. long have you been a comedian? I've been doing comedy for sixteen and a half years. Mm-hmm. Something like that. Wow. So you started off here in New York? Yep. Started in New York in 2001. I, I was living in L.A., uh, going to college. I dropped out of college. I worked for an event planning company that my cousin owned for a little while, and I dabbled a little bit in comedy out there. I did a couple of uh, open mics at the comedy store, and I, I hosted a band night at my cousin's nightclub. But I didn't really, I wasn't really serious about it. I wasn't, I didn't have anything prepared. I would just go up and kind of get used to bombing, essentially. <laughs> um <laughs> what was like your early stuff? What was what was what you? Oh your man, early act? I remember the first stuff I remember writing down and doing more than once was when I used to host this band night at my cousin's nightclub. I would it was the Tuesday it was a Tuesday night punk show, oh, and so they had all these like random it'd be like four four different bands, and I would go up and I would just introduce the bands, and mm-hmm. I would do a minute or two before mm-hmm. I would introduce them, and more often than not. Uh, at the beginning of the night, there wasn't a lot of weren't a lot of people there for the mm-hmm. first band. Right. But more often than not, nobody that was there to see the band gave a crap about <laughs> anything that I said. They didn't want to hear one word of out of me. Uh, but it was a punk night, so I, I kind of rationalized it by saying, "Well, I, they want to be angry, <laughs> so I'm going to make I'm, them angry." I'm riling them up. <laughs> but I remember I remember something so specifically. My cousin had been a musician, and he told me. That the biggest the piece of advice that if you're performing, if you're opening for a band, make sure that you can make the band laugh. If you can make the band laugh, then you're good. No matter exactly. how much the audience hates you, the the, the band will. Uh, the band uh, is not going to like leave you there, just right. rolling their eyes. <laughs> so 
more often than not, also the band didn't want want, want me there either. So I was really just trying to make the the uh, uh, bartender laugh. And the first joke I remember doing that got a laugh from the bartender that he kept repeating to me all the time was because there was this one band. It was I don't know what kind of it was like an industrial, uh, heavy, really heavy thing. It, it was like a Stonehenge of speakers that they were building on the stage, <laughs> and the drum kit was in the middle of all of that. And you so ultimately, oh you could, ultimately it would look like the, like a cage of speakers, <laughs> like a fort of speakers With that they were drummer inside. that they were hiding the drummer behind. So I told the audience, you got a better. Be careful of who comes out from from behind all these speakers after that, because he's liable to do a number on you and leave you with one ball. <laughs> they're like, and they're like, what? Yeah, I don't, I don't, I, <laughs> I didn't get it. Like, right. Whatever. The the, the 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 bartender enjoyed the one ball. The thing. one ball I don't, conversation. I don't, don't know why. They didn't charge me for drinks there. I didn't. <laughs> and clearly, you drink a lot. I mean, I did drink a lot there. <laughs> So, okay, so here you are now. How old are you when you're doing all that? Uh, that was, I was guess I was 22, 23, okay. and then I moved back to New York, um, and I had just turned 24. It was February of 01, started mm-hmm. started doing comedy. Interesting. I uh, uh, started mostly doing, I would do, I don't know, a bringer or two a month, and uh, uh, three or four open mics a week. How interesting, because I just, as you were saying that, I, I realize now, Although I guess I am probably about 10 or 15 years older than you. I'm not sure. But I started around the same time, too, Mm -hmm. at about 24, 25. Um, And for me, it was I started with a class. And it was a class that I accidentally discovered. Um, This guy named Sammy. We got a shout out to Sammy Cox in Austin, Texas. Hey, Sam. Hope you're still alive. Yeah, I don't know. Shit, it's been it's been a lot. It's been a minute since I've seen him. Um, but he was the person who taught the stand up comedy workshop in one of those informal classes, you know. And um, he was the person that taught the basic idea of how to write a joke. But his approach was really great because it was about he made everyone in class like they have the little microphone and the the little speaker, and you go up to the mic and you. Tell your story. Tell who you're from, who you are, where you're from, something about yourself, that kind of thing. Right. And literally within the time of the class, he could help you formulate your first five minutes from just the conversation that you were having about you okay. and how to punch up the things in your life. And do. so th- that was I, I remember having that that epiphanal moment at 24 that I was going to decide to do it. And right. Wow. I had always wanted to do it. I was yeah. I, I decided at uh, seven that I wanted to do stand up. Wow. I told my mother at seven years old I was going to be a comedian, and I told her, don't worry. I know comedians don't make a lot of money, but I have a plan. I'm going to support myself by being a writer. <laughs> wow. And then I said, not a writer like you, Mom, a real writer. <gasps> Whoa. My mom, so my seven mom, years old and shady. <laughs> yeah, well, my, my mom was a travel writer. Oh, okay. She was a family travel writer, so that's what I, I was. That's who you got. I wasn't. Burn. I wasn't trying to throw any shade at her, but I ended up. I. I think it's a really. I think it's a fucking hilarious story. Uh-huh. So I don't know if I can. You can say whatever you want. You can curse on this. You one. can curse. <laughs> on this. You can curse anywhere. I might bleep you out because right. I. I don't know if the theater kids are listening. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but this is great, though. So you you decide now you're going to jump into the scene, and then. How long did it take you from the time that you started at 24 to that first really amazing gig? Mm. And where was it? The first really amazing gig. 
I think, well, I did a lot of, um, I had a lot of great shows in the beginning. I feel like I, I, my first five minutes, I had an opening joke that would, that would kill every time. So even if I had a bad set, I would still do okay. Mm -hmm. I, I had a lot of, I did a lot of, I, I was lucky that I was funny because I did a lot of bringers where after the first couple of months, they start, I, my, 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 not all my people would show, but as well, long yeah. as I, but as long as I had a couple of people, mm -hmm. they, they would cut my time a little bit, but they would still throw me up because I didn't stink up the show. Right. You know, I, I, I was, you I had something funny to say. Yeah. So I, I, I was lucky in that. And I remember the, the very first show, uh, the, the second show I, the second bringer I did was Marion Groden's show at the Gotham. Wow. And so she was the first person to book me for a real show. At the du and it was at the duplex. Uh -huh. uh, I, I think yeah. uh, we talked about that that the, the, on the last episode. Like mm -hmm. this is the, the duplex was the, the the first place that I got booked outright for a show that I didn't have to bring people to. I had to bark, right? But it was uh, on a Saturday night at ten o'clock. Was the first wow, you know, a prime, prime time. time show. Yeah, yeah. and uh, I remember the lineup was just. I, I, if I remember most, I remember most of the lineup are people that are. That I still I know most of them. You know, it was Marion mm -hmm. Groden, Danny Cohen, Jody Wasserman, Bob DeBono. Wow. You know, this is a oh, that's a group. That's a group. Jody and, and Danny, I both know. Yeah, I worked yeah. with both of them. Yeah, yeah. and I mean, so it's it, it, uh, that was that for me was a big one. I, I really I remember specifically how much, even though b I wasn't really very good at barking yet, I, I and I think maybe I got one person in, mm -hmm. just knowing that somebody thought, hey, this kid is going to be good. And that was based off of the first show I did did with her. Wow! So that was like maybe uh, maybe two months in that I that I did that, and I did her show at uh, the duplex a handful of times, and I remember one of them that I did. Uh, Louis Black was the headliner, and I had my a cousin of mine and some of her friends came to the show, uh -huh. and they left before Louis Black went on. I said, "You can't leave. He's gonna be." And they're like, we don't care. We can see you. And this is, you know, <laughs> this is like early two thousand two. Wow, he was big then. Yeah, but it's, but he wasn't as big. Right, but he was pretty big. He was, he was already on the Daily Show at that point. Yeah, and they didn't stay. I couldn't believe it. <laughs> see, but now are they kicking themselves today? Eh. <laughs> Maybe not. <laughs> but so you know, they, if when they come to see me now, they stay till the end. They stay till the end because <laughs> <laughs> they never know who's yeah, you never surprise. know. Yeah. So what's for me, I think I'd love to know now. But I'll cause... tell you that. But I'll tell you the the, the, the other big show. Okay. I I started working with this guy who actually had been friends with my brother. He was a club promoter. He was another rich kid that was just trying to figure out what he wanted to do with his life. And mm -hmm. he was a club promoter, and his he decided he wanted to do comedy. And uh, uh, I was part of his original team. And he we did a bunch of shows at the Triad Theater, and he blew it up really big, really fast. Right. And he booked two shows at the Comedy Garden inside Madison Square Garden. Wow. The first one was in June of this was in in 2002. The first one was in June. The second one was in August. And then he blew it up even bigger and moved it to the Supper Club on 47th Street, which was like 1500 seats, whereas the Comedy Garden was the lobby area of the theater, so right. it was about 600 seats. <laughs> oh, only 600. Uh and the first show, <laughs> the first show was was a bunch of unknowns and and, uh, and 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 a headliner and the the we were all trying to sell tickets for it we were, right he he papered the room a little bit but it was mostly us unknowns that were doing a lot of the legwork to get a lot of the stuff done but it was I, I, 
I don't even know. Greg Wilson was the host and Chuck Nice was the headliner. Chuck, I was just talking about Chuck Nice today. Yeah. Hilarious. So the rest of that, and I don't, I don't think anybody else from that first show is still doing comedy. Yeah. Uh, and, then, and, and, for, and for those who might know a little bit, like you may have seen Chuck Nice with the fourth hour, I know a lot lately, with the women on, on uh, the Today Show with Kathy Lee and, right. and Hoda. He's part of like the man's panel. So right, every right. now and then you'll see him come through. At the time, he was the uh, morning DJ on Q1043 with right. the radio chick. Mm-hmm. And then he's done, he had a show on HGTV, yeah. Strange Home, Strange Home, something yeah. like that. He's a very funny guy. Really, uh-huh. I, I, lo- I, I, I love Chuck. Um, so so that, was the, that was in June. And my brother was at that show. I sold 25 tickets to that show. Wow. And uh, my brother told my brother left before the show was over. Uh-huh. But I remember him coming backstage and telling me that the the whole room hadn't laughed as one until I t- got up there, and I had had a great wow. set. And then he died in July, wow. and I was booked for the second one in August. Uh-huh. So that was like the big joke at the at the shiva was like, "Is there anything I can do?" I was like, "Well, I got a big show." <laughs> And I ended up selling 125 tickets to that show, wow. uh, and I just I needed to do it. I needed yeah. to get back on stage. I did a few shows prior to that to get ready for it, but it was really and I didn't think I had as great of a set on that one. I was much more mechanical, but it was. Well, you were I you was were more getting, stayed at that yeah. place, yeah. And that show was big for a number of reasons. First of all, the the lineup was you know Rich Aronovich, uh, mm-hmm. Jessica Kirsten, Chuck. Jessica, um, who's and, just killing it. If you get on Instagram, follow Jessica Kirsten on uh, Instagram. She, she will tickle the best. your coochie box. She's hilarious. Yeah. I'm going to try to get her up here, too. And so I got a standing ovation on, on that show. And wow. uh, But the biggest part of it was the second one, they they put a, they put all, everybody's name on the marquee of the garden one by one. Pre- appearing tonight at the Comedy Garden. Oh. Rich Aronovich, Jessica Kirsten, Chuck Nice, Greg Wilson, Jordan Ferber. And so I took a, I mean, so everybody that I know that came to that show Uh saw my name by itself on the marquee of the garden as they walked in. So that was pretty big. I mean, that's, that's, and for me, especially the fact that my brother knew so many people in the garden, Mm -hmm. it really was uh, like the first full circle moment in a way. It was, it it was, it was sanctioned. It was, it was meant to be, it was meant to have happened. You know, that I, it was, it was, it was part of like the rebuilding process and a bolstering of my soul that, that, that it turned out the way that it did. So fabulous. I'm about to cry talking to Jordan Ferber, comedian. And And it's, and it's the, it's the, my business card is the, my picture of you. And my website, if you go to my website, jordanferber.com, it is the picture of, of the garden marquee, uh, uh, because I mean, c- come on! Yeah, when I made this business card, my dad said, "Well, that's not that's not that subtle, is it?" I said, <laughs> "Hell no!" <laughs> I said, "Listen, if you had your name on the marquee of the garden, you too would be giving that to everyone you know." Absolutely. <laughs> and the thing is, is that they don't need to know when; they just need to know it's happened. Yes, that's so fabulous. But now this is great because Jordan is also a fellow podcaster, which is one of the things that I love in his podcast, if you guys want to check that out, it's called Where's the Grief? And it's wheresthegrief.com, and it's also on the iTunes and everywhere else you can get. And Stitcher. You're doing Stitcher as well? I'm on Stitcher as well. And it's great because it's a podcast, like we said earlier, is focused on grief and loss, but it's a conversation with other comedians that have had that because one of those things that, is that common thing about a lot of us as, as comics is that we have a lot of tragedy somewhere in our lives. And it's how we either choose to deal with the tragedy 
or how we actually can make it work for us. Because right. I think it's it's all about making it work for you now after at 50. <laughs> I'm sorry. Well, I, I, think, I, I think regardless of what you do with the, with the tragedy or what you do with the emotions, I think it's really important just to have a place where you can talk about it. Right. Where you're allowed the space to be open and honest about how you really feel. I, because for me, I don't even know if I had a vocabulary to talk about how I felt until I started talking about it. Mm -hmm. I didn't know how I... I, I, I figure things out through thinking it out out loud. And yeah. um, it, it's it, you can drive yourself crazy in a lot of ways by having those thoughts and not having any way to put it in order with another person as a listener um, and think that maybe you're going out of your mind. So, so, so just being able to put it out there and getting it acknowledged as a thing is such a huge part of the rebuilding process, I think, of, of figuring out which direction you want to take it. That's that's fabulous. I mean, you just it is. It's one of those things. It's like, and I deal with it off and on from time to time. And like, as we get closer to like, you know, the Father's Day, the Mother's Day for me, it's always that kind of. I have those kinds of moments and reflections. So yeah. But the but the good thing is is that you are channeling your energies, and you are finding not only a way to keep yourself afloat emotionally, but you're also helping. Some poor culinary student get his bacon goods on or her bacon goods on. That's right. Through the memory of, of your brother. And now for you, what other things do you do for yourself to kind of – I should ask you really, as a comedian, what's the kinds of things that make you laugh now? Because it's, it's sometimes it's hard to think about laughter after you're talking about grief. But. Right. Oh, boy. Well, I don't know. I, 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 I like absurdity, and I really like the – things that you can find to laugh at about a situation, even when the situation is totally like like a topic of death. Mm -hmm. You know, I run a support group for other bereaved siblings in the city, and we laugh a lot in that group yeah. because it's just, it's, it's ridiculous sometimes how you have to be proactive in the way that you present just who you are to, and, 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 Within the grief uh, realm, it's even more pronounced. Mm -hmm. You know, I think you have to find a way to to present yourself, in no matter what the scenario is. But I think that when you're dealing with, you know, certain things, uh, uh, there's there's a way of owning the the your own narrative that a lot of people don't take the reins on. I think it's it's very easy to not want to talk about it or to let other people dictate the way that conversation goes. And I think that uh, it's almost comical. Uh, how when you start to turn it on its head a little bit, that when I felt when I started to feel the power of it, like it's really funny how quickly you can make somebody else uncomfortable <laughs> with, the, with the power of grief. Yeah. <laughs> well, we're not supposed to use the power of grief to make people uncomfortable, but if it makes them uncomfortable, you know what? I'm 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 living with loss, so you can get over your discomfort. You know what I yeah. mean? I love that though. So you. You you have this organization now. On June twenty eighth, we were saying before that you will be having the uh, fundraising event. Yes, for your organization, and at the same time, you still have to do comedy elsewhere. Where are you performing? What other places are you doing stuff that people can hook on to? Right. Well, I perform pretty regularly at uh, uh, what I consider to be one of the best. Uh, B or C rooms in the city is the Grizzly Pear on McDougal Street. Okay. Sort of in between the cellar and the Greenwich Village Comedy Club. Okay. Um, it's 107 McDougal Street. I'm there probably a few times a week. I'm hosting a show there tomorrow. I'm there. I'm, I'm there a lot on the weekends. 
Um, I'm, I'm at Stand Up New York a couple times a month. I'm at the Duplex. Uh, I will be at the Duplex actually next Wednesday for the the Poppy Kramer. Uh, Is she returning? She's 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 uh, <sighs> curating and hosting the, the this next Wednesday's uh, show before Pride. Ooh. I will be on that show. Oh, and... that sounds like Keith Price needs to be on that show. I gotta <laughs> actually have him have material. No, <laughs> been lacking on the writing lately because of the editing, but still, wow. And that's always a lot of fun to do that show. And that's great because here in New York City, we are about to jump into the the Pride Madness. The Pride Madness. And once that starts popping off, the party is on around here. Like you know, and it's great because there's all kinds of really great entertainment and stuff like that. But what I love is the fact that this is a time for you not even being an not even being a gay comedian, if that's the the term now. <laughs> I'm kind of glad that we're moving away a little bit from that. But just being one of the comedians that gets to you're an LGBT-friendly comedian, I should say. Indeed. Which gives you a little bit of carte blanche to perform during Pride. What's one of the things you like performing in front of like audiences that are primarily gay? What's one of your favorite things um, about it? Well, I love that they are very... They, that, those are the most honest audiences. You get, a, you get, you get a pretty strong reaction whether they, when they like a joke or when they don't like a joke. Mm-hmm. So I, I like that a lot. And I think that you can go deeper... Uh, into heavier topics with uh, uh, those with those audiences in a lot of cases than you can before. Than you can with a regular audience, yeah. you know. What's your favorite audiences, basically, besides gays to perform in front of? Well, the audience for my benefit show is is the greatest audience that there is. You can't, you you you, you know, you can because that's a combination of a they love to laugh, b they're there for the event itself it's it's the it's a special kind of time yeah yeah i'm not i'm not a big enough name to be a draw in any other room (laughs) except for your own uh but but uh it's i i I wish i could bottle that that audience (laughs) just take it with you all the time yeah uh what are the other audiences that i like to perform for i don't know i think city crowds are really i really like City crowds because they're smarter and savvier than than a lot of other audiences. You know, when you go on the road, um, I, I've had shows where I, I remember doing a show in Connecticut once where I just died horribly on stage for about twelve minutes. It was just <sighs> awful, uh, <sighs> and I knew I was gonna. I, I knew from the opening joke that this was not going to go well. Just uh, deeper and deeper. Nothing I did worked, and then the headliner came out. His and he was. He started with a lip sync to my, a Michael Jackson song, and he was dressed as Michael Jackson, oh, and the God. place went nuts. nuts. So I was like, okay, <laughs> that's not my audience. That's just what that is. That's just not my crowd. Well, you know, it's so funny, though, because, again, when you're in those scenarios and you're thinking, I have 12 minutes, and here I am at minute 11, minute one, and this just isn't going well. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, what is, what is your technique to handle that? Because I know there's people that are thinking, oh, comedy, comics. It's like, you know what? We have performance anxieties and performance issues like every other type of performer. And, you know, those folks that do eight shows a week can tell you that there are days when they go out there and the audience is just sitting there staring at them. Right. And then there's days that the audience, like, you know, you're walking across the stage and it creaks and they're like, oh, my God, that's fabulous. You know, so, like, you know, they know, you know, those people know just like we know. When we're not having a good right. time on stage. <laughs> well, that audience was like a, <laughs> like a painting, <laughs> a still life. Still life. It's like they're just listening. Yeah. It's like, well, in comedy, we need you to listen and laugh. We right. don't want you to just listen because it makes us nervous. 
I think there are different ways to uh, go about that. First of all, I always you gotta you have to address it. I mean, you have yes. to acknowledge what's happening. Yes. And I like to do that with a fair amount, uh, and and I feel like you can really only do it once. Maybe twice you can get away with a second one later again. If, yeah. it, if it, but I think you can, you know, you don't want to. Like by the third one, if you do well, no, it I again, think, you're crying. I, I think it's you just just acknowledge that you don't feel like you're doing great. And mm-hmm. uh, uh, but if you tell an audience often enough that you're doing badly, even if you're doing well, they will begin to believe you because mm-hmm. the, they and, don't know what your act is. And I think it's a there's a mistake to aggressively attack or or blame the audience for it. I feel like. Sometimes you just have to switch gears on what you're doing. I like to I like to play around, you know. I'll stop and say, "By the way, you guys are electric." <laughs> I mean, you can just feel the electricity in the room. You can literally hear it coming off of every appliance. <laughs> so, just little things like that or I'll uh, I'll stop and So, I I have a, I have a joke I do about uh uh the Holocaust, and if it doesn't go well, I'll say, I just want to let you guys know, you tightened up a little bit on the Holocaust material. I'm not, I, I just want to let you know, I noticed. <laughs> I, I noticed. I did notice. I will, I'll, I'll, I'm going to wait for you. Right. Because I'll be here on the other side when you, when you unclench. Right. <laughs> but let's lighten it up. We'll lighten it up, I guess. And then you go a little deeper. You, know? you go deeper. <laughs> it, you know what, though? How much fun is it, though, for you to be able to have the freedom to talk about all that kind of stuff on stage in general? And... As a comedian, do you feel the uh, claws of political correctness keeping you from doing what you love to do? Uh, I don't feel, no. I don't feel like the political correctness keeps me from doing anything. I think that they're, the best jokes that push those types of buttons, there is a basis for defending not just the I joke, the joke, but the idea behind the joke. Right. And I think that when you can get to a place where that's true, then... I, then you don't have anything to worry about because people may challenge you on the issue, but you can defend it as a concept and as a joke. And I think uh, that that's, the, the, you know, these are just opinions, but I think that you, there are all these hot button issues. People have these little triggers that they have, but I think that when you can push past whatever those triggers are to get to a truth that somebody can relate to, the 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 power and and the, I think, the intention of trying to get to that point is, I think, worth pushing past the apprehensiveness of maybe offending somebody along the way. On the, uh, along the way, but I think also it's like it's like anything else. You know, if you're doing a for if you're doing a joke that you know is heavily charged, there is a little bit more of a danger and a little bit more of a risk in telling that joke, and you can feel the energy bristle a little bit when you start to go into that type of territory. And I think it's, but I think it's important to acknowledge and know, understand what it is that you're talking about. Okay. You know, like if you're going to talk about um, a political issue or a, a racial issue, you know, uh, it's it's about no understanding what the history is, so that you know respect what what that stuff is. Like I, I did. I, okay. I, I, like I had a joke for a little while about. Um, I stopped doing it because I just didn't it didn't fit with a lot of other stuff that I did, and, and uh, I've 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 since seen other people do uh, longer pieces on on this on the topic that were I think more meaningful than the joke I wrote, which is but it was basically a joke about how 
Um, uh, the, the, the one piece of good news out of the Trump White House is that he's actually considering putting Harriet Tubman on the $20 bill, but because of the three-fifths laws, it's only going to be worth $12. <laughs> <laughs> See, I <laughs> See, that's for you people that also need to know your math. Anyway, so. <laughs> yeah. Right, that's the thing. It's, it's a history lesson and a math lesson. And, All at once. Right. But see, you know what's so interesting? It's like I I hear you saying about where you are as a performer and where you need to stand behind your material and your conversations and the jokes that you decide to tell and whether or not you're going to tell them. Not all of them are jokes that you have to stand behind. I think right. there's pl- you know there's plenty of reasons to have good good you know surface levels uh, dick jokes and right. whatever stuff those, that you can throw away. They're always they're evergreen. Yeah. But here's the question that I have now because as another comedian. We're going to talk about one of our fellow comedians, and we're going to talk about how using the um, using the the art, shall we say, to express yourself when you know you're stepping over a line. But Kathy Griffin, now since we this this is our second podcast since the first right. podcast, which was taped a little bit earlier, secret backstage secret, um, the Kathy Griffin thing had not happened, and I was sitting with Allison at the time, and I I wished now that I could go back and find her so we can sit and talk about that because I would love to have her perspective perspective as a woman right. who's also a comedian. But for you as a, just a comic, do you think that was art? Um, or do you think that that was supposed to be funny? Because it depends upon how you look at it, I think. But right. you go, you tell me what you think. Hmm. That's interesting. I think... You know, it's hard to tell now because she's muddled it with all of like the the uh, uh, he said she said type of stuff. Mm-hmm. So she's gone sort of backpedaled a little bit and tried to make it more of an artistic endeavor than a uh, like more of a statement thing than a than a joke thing. Mm-hmm. Where I think, whereas I think initially she really was trying to go for a joke. She was trying to be put to. I that's th- what I think. I think you know because I mean, uh, Kathy, that's what she does. Kathy is a reactionary person, and most of her act is she tells funny stories about basically being an instigating uh, presence backstage in these areas where she doesn't treat other celebrities like they're uh, immortal. She right. walks up to them like uh, like a person, and they see her and they bristle, <laughs> right? Because she's but she but she's a hundred percent herself, and she doesn't give a shit. She doesn't care. She's gonna go for the the jugular in the. Uh, 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 vein of trying to go for a joke or mm-hmm. or trying to find a truth about things, and I think, um, I think maybe at this point she's probably too far inside of her own bubble to have the kind of people around her that would say, eh, "That might be a little far." Well, so all right, but so I my... also, but I'll also say, I'll also say this, you know, um, you don't have people. There aren't enough people that are uh, jumping to her defense the, the, no. like they used to. You know, I have I got to tell you that if if Joan Rivers was still alive, you could bet that she'd be in Kathy's corner over this. I, I would <laughs> I would hope she would be, I, but I would almost think she would only do it just because she knows that Kathy would be out there alone. Right. It wouldn't be because I think she would have believed in the joke. Yeah. Especially since. You know, Joan Rivers did win Celebrity Apprentice with Donald Trump. I'm sure she has a lot of opinions about him, but we'll never know. Right. But but for me, with with what I wanted to get to was that 
she's a comedian, right? And her comedy is basically, I saw Justin Bieber, I saw right. so-and-so, I, and this is what happened, and this is how I was with them, and this is what they said to me, and that's all right, right? That's not political comedy, right? Right. And so when you hold up the head of a sitting president, not just right. Trump or any city, any sitting world leader, that could have been Putin's head on that thing. When you hold up a head of a leader of a, a country's head bloodied with whatever expressions you're trying to make, there's no joke there. No. So yeah. I, I don't know what joke you thought you were telling and I honestly don't really know what art you were telling because here's the thing. When you decide that you're going to be that kind like if she's always been known to me as a political comic, you know, like if she were giving you hard truths like a Sandra Bernhard sometimes when she gets political or 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 um uh else is, you know, not just celebrity style political, but like has an edge, like a Kate Clinton would have uh, something political to say. Um that if they were to do something like that in my mind, I would not see it so far out of character because their methodology is right. that style. She doesn't have that style. So whatever the style or whatever point she thought she was making, you're holding the head of the of a, a leader, world leader, bloodied, staged or not, in your hand making faces and doing things. And it's like, and we all know what a beheading means. Like, mm -hmm. you just... You just don't do that, and it's like, and I don't think that there was any thought well, put into that. Well, hold on. So I, I, I mean, just as a somebody that 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 works in 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 these types of mediums, I think that that's what I mean about her being so far into the bubble because she, the way that it was shot, she clearly that was professionally done. Absolutely, professional. So there writing. were people. So there were people that were. That had opportunity to say, "Hey, Girl. maybe this isn't the right <laughs> like, tone." Just, just go. Are you sure you want to go with this look? I'm just checking. Right. Just asking. I mean, oh, okay. it seems to me that the whole, I mean, the joke obviously was that she was, you know, the blood coming out of wherever. That right. was the that, whole thing. Well, I think that was the last minute save, personally speaking. Right. I, you know, you know, yes, that was the joke. Yes, that's what we were told the joke was. Right. Or the. The message behind what she was, but trying the, to put but in. but first of all, it, it, that that comment wasn't made by Trump yesterday. You no. know that, that that's not that's been long. There's there's so ago. many more news cycles that have that he's said a lot more inflammatory stuff since mm -hmm. then. But I, I, I think that it wasn't it was that some of the things that she was I think trying to reference or even that she said she was trying to reference are were no longer part of the national conversation that we were having. So it was a little bit. And too, a little too little too late to try to make that kind of a statement. And not to mention, uh, Kelly, what's her name? Megan Kelly didn't ask for any help. Right. She didn't ask you to take up her cause. She didn't ask you to to use my name to save your ass. It's like, you know, what you should have did was put a, a pinup of him holding some tampons. Right. And go there if you were to try to hold him, have him holding a bloody tampon or something to where when you try to explain it being that joke, that's exactly where you were going. But it's like, I, I just have a hard time with when people, it's sort of like this weird kind of equality that, you know, she was trying to say that if she were a male comic that did the same thing, that people wouldn't come for her. And I totally disagree. Because I consider myself a male comic. Mm -hmm. I may be a gay male comic, if that's how people want to pinpoint me, but I'm also black. Could you imagine what would have happened if I had held up 
Donald Trump's bloodied head, giving that quote as my reason to step out of art, when people know me as the right. big queen with a boa, like, no one is going to see that any more than for what it is, which is an incendiary statement of holding a right. world leader's head. It's like, well, it wouldn't be bloodied if you were holding it up. It would have you, like, you know, it would be a... Uh... Putin's uh, a Putin d- oh. a Putin dildo in the mouth there. Oh yeah, I would go all the way. <laughs> I would I'd make it. I would go full on disgusting if you're going to go there. Yeah. So, but <laughs> but I mean, but at the same time, it's like, but you know, that's generally not my style of comedy. That's not your style of right. comedy. So you would find a way to have that conversation about Donald Trump in your act in a much different way, but that's not even a part of her act. Well, so that's why I'm saying I just you know? think, I just think that it, there's just not there weren't enough people. Uh, uh, to tell her that this was not a good idea. Yeah. I mean, I think it's the same thing with that Pepsi commercial that everybody was all up in arms about with Kendall Jenner. Yeah. You know, it's like a bit tone deaf. Um, <laughs> it's called everyone's and, overvaluing and, their importance in and, the world. And that's, that's what that was. And that's even... <laughs> I, I think there's an even bigger problem with that because way more people <laughs> signed off on that. There's corporations that signed you know, off on I'm that You know, I'm saying... Th- that's so true. Oh my God! They sh- they probably even showed that to a to a, a test marketing group. And they're like, Oh my God, that's the most amazing yeah. thing. <sighs> they're gonna heal the world. No, they're not. <laughs> Gen- the Jenners, yeah. the Kardashians, they're not gonna save us. The only thing that they're gonna do for us, especially as comedians, is give us more fodder. <laughs> it's like that's all they have. Right. But I mean, but even as comedians, though, we have to. Do you feel? The pressure, especially now with someone like a Kathy Griffin doing what she's done, do you feel the pressure when it comes to your material to find a way to not get in that arena but still have that kind of impact? Well, I don't do that type of stuff. I really don't do – most of my material all revolves around the immediacy of my life, and I don't go into the political spectrum very much You're at all. a narcissist. Well, no, I just I, – I, I, I don't <laughs> – Especially now, the, the political yeah. thing is... It's, it's so, too unstable. It, it, it's, it's, it's just a, a complicated issue, and I don't know enough about it to really give an, be an author, authority on, mm-hmm. on any, any of it. So I leave that to the people that, that do that. Yeah. And I think there are some people out there that do a very good job at it. There's a, a lot of political comedy out there that's really good. Um, and people that are making real points in... In, in, in the scene. You know, in doing that. So I think... that. For me, it's not that's not a big issue, but I do think that it it makes it more. You can understand more why how you know where the where the lines are, right? You know, and so th- that's why I say when you're going to go into the deeper waters, if you're going to do material about an issue that you know is a hot button issue for some people, understand the gravity of it and. That some people may not be listening to you right after the premise because that's just they go they they're no longer you know you you face the thing yeah you saw the bloody head so I I can't think about what you're saying right now because right. I'm shocked that you were giving me a bloody head yeah so I mean I don't do a lot of that type of stuff but mm-hmm. when I do do material of that nature I find that it's if you can find a way to go straight at a hot button issue like that and still get somebody to listen to the point that you're going to make. I think that that's there's a lot of value in that. You right. know, it's it's even more, it's important stuff to do that. Yeah. Well, you know, though, Jordan, at this point now, I mean, it's sort of like I have to let you go because <laughs> we're we're going to talk and someone else is coming soon. Right. Um. But who knows? There might be an encore. <laughs> there might be an encore. <laughs> whatever. Because I got that power. But June twenty eighth, you must go to 
was it jordanferber.com? Well, is that your thing? Wait. Uh, jordanferber.com is my website. Your website. But if you go to russellferberfoundation.org, that's the website for the foundation for my brother, and there's a, a page there for about, about this year's benefit. We're going to have a full list of our raffle and silent auction items up on the website, uh, hopefully well. at the end of this week. So people can bid and stuff online? Well, you can't bid on them just yet, but it's just a, 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 a teaser, you know, nice. to so entice at least you. Tell you to come so you can see, fair. so you can sort of... Uh, Budget for yourself what you want, might want to spend because it is a numbers game with, the, right. with the raffle tickets. And is there a place that people can just make just a donation if they want and, to yeah, just and, and, straight up donate to your yep, organization? Yep, if you, if you go to the RussellFerberFoundation.org, there's also a page for donations, and it'll take you directly to uh, our PayPal where you can donate year-round to what we're doing. Nice. And the money that gets raised for that helps not only the, the school where you're doing this, your old elementary school, but also provides a scholarship for pastry chefs at the Culinary Institute of America in upstate New York. Correct, it, yep. Like right outside of... It's in like Poughkeepsie, yeah. Poughkeepsie, yeah. A couple Park. hours away. Nice. Yeah, it's fabulous. And Beautiful you know, campus up there as well. And using your, your talent as a comedian to not only make people laugh, and that's like part of what we do, but at the same time taking your life experience and your life story and using that to also foster some good for somebody out in the world. So, Jordan Ferber, you're more than a comedian, my darling. Well, thank you. You're more than a comedian. And you're, and again, and I hope that as you continue to hang out with me at the Lavender Laugh Lounge that you get an opportunity not only to get to meet the comedians and see that there are also real people with real things <laughs> and real stuff happening, but also, too, to get a little bit more insight because I love the idea that I don't get to talk to a lot of comedians openly about someone like a Kathy Griffin because right. we're all so busy like hoping no one knows what we're saying. <laughs> Especially <laughs> if we're in the club. Is she here? Because <laughs> she's going to be skulking around a few clubs now looking for some time because hey, she listen, ain't got nothing else better to do. If she, if, if she starts doing jokes about me and her act, I've made it. <laughs> yeah. I love it. Hold up a bloody stump of my head. I'll, I'll do it. <laughs> hey, anything to get them to go to jordanferber.com to right. find out more about you exactly. and your fabulous podcast as well, Where's the Grief, which is also available on iTunes and Stitcher. And again, Jordan, thank you so much. Well, thanks for having me. All right. Oh, boy. This is great, right? Fantastic. And so now, I don't know who's going to be our next comedian, but believe me, they're going to be just as fabulous as this young man is, all right? Ah. And we'll be back. For more podcasts, go to Keith Price's Curtain Call on iTunes, SoundCloud, MixCloud, and Google Play.